0: thankful to be here with y'all today i i did go to the mountains for about five six days and it was wonderful up there got to see my brother and my sister and and had some study leave and and such as that it was wonderful um i'd like to thank john draxinger um for filling in and bringing the message uh for two weeks i really appreciate him doing that i <laughs> say, john doing that and uh gave me a little time um to be off I'd also like to thank Joseph and, and John and all the all the staff and all the volunteers. That It takes a lot of helping hands to make this church come alive on a Sunday morning. And I just appreciate all of y'all so very much um, that helped make that happen. I'm just a very small part, a very small part of that. But very grateful for that. Um, we're going to return to the Gospel of Luke. And if you remember... In chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, was the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you remember the lawyer, he said, uh, he, said um, he said, who is my neighbor? And, and, and the parable of the Good Samaritan was Jesus' answer to that question. Because basically what he was saying was, okay, how much do I have to do, right? Who do I have to love? Who do I have to care about and show compassion? Who do I have to be a neighbor? And of course, Jesus' overall message was the parable. But the parable said, show compassion to whomever you can. That was the point. That was the answer. It's not about how little you can do, which is what the lawyer was concerned about. But it's how much you can do. And doing what you can do to show love and compassion to others. And chapter 10, of course, ended with Mary and Martha uh, and the difference between doing for Jesus and being with Jesus. And actually, during the message today, we're going to talk about the importance of being with Jesus As Mary said, uh, the Lord said, that's the good part, right? Just being with Jesus. So I'd like to start by reading chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. By the way, I want to point out that the service kind of started late and got handed off to me a little bit late. So if I run over, okay, I'm just saying, just saying. (laughs) But last night I cut out a big chunk of my message because it was too long. It was too long but I'm going to do my best because I know with that smell, if I'm not done, you guys are just going to get up and walk out of here and go get some sausage or pancakes. So listen, I'm just kidding. I know you wouldn't do that. Let me read chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. It says, And it happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place. After he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight, midnight, right? And he says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, as in bread, right? Lend me three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, in other words, inside the house, he answers and says, Do not bother me, for the door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. In verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you anything because he is a friend, in other words, because of his friendship, even though he won't be a friend to you, yet because of his persistence... He will get up and give him as much as he needs. Persistence in prayer. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened to you. Confidence in prayer. Now suppose that one of you, one of you fathers who are here, is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? It's a polemical question. We know the answer, and it's of course not, right? Jesus, it's a it's a style of teaching. Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? Of course not. Of course not. And Jesus ends with this. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Would you pray with me? Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, Lord, give us ears to hear what you're saying to your church. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts, the way these scriptures fall upon our minds and our understanding, give us good eyes, give us proper perception of what you're trying to teach us today. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you are saying to your church. God, I ask your special blessing on the reading and hearing of your word. And the way that I seek to explain it, that it would bring understanding to us, to your people, that you would bring that to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. So that we can live more fully for you, more faithfully for you. In your name, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. So the first order of business in chapter 11 is prayer, right? Prayer. And it is also one of the things that should be priority. I mean priority in the Christian world life right just like Mary who spent time with Jesus while Martha was doing all this he said it's the good part prayers the good part see you can't you can't know someone if you don't spend time with them would not you agree with that you can't really get to know someone if you don't spend time for, for for example if I said well Bob and I you know we're really close friends we're really close and then and you say to me well do you all spend a lot of time together And I said well no and you say oh well do you do you talk a lot no well, do you call them on the phone? No. Well, do you like text them and, 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 and exchange emails regularly? No, never. But we're just like this. We're really close. That wouldn't make sense, would it? No, it doesn't make sense because you have to spend time with someone to get to know them. Spending time with Jesus, okay? Spending time with Jesus is reading his word, learning about his life and teachings like we're doing here. It's praying. It's talking to him. It's sharing your deepest needs, hopes, dreams and thoughts with the lord sharing them with him and then that's not the end it's listening it's listening watching and waiting for his answers prayer is one of the number one priorities or should be for us as christians so here in chapter 11 we see Jesus, as we often do in the Gospels, going off somewhere to pray, right? In the Gospels it says, well, Jesus went off into a lonely place to pray, right? You remember here, he went off into the wilderness to pray. Or he went up onto the mountain to pray. And here, at the beginning of chapter 11, it says he went to a, what, a certain place. And when he had finished praying, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught us, taught his disciples to pray. Speaking of John the Baptist, and actually a couple of Jesus' disciples were probably at one time disciples of John the Baptist. And so Jesus said this. He says, when you pray, say this. And then he gives them an outline for how to pray. It's not necessarily that he wants to pray it word for word exactly like that, although that's perfectly fine. And Christians have done it for centuries, right? Perfectly fine. But he's also giving us an outline to pray. And as I read this morning, you probably noticed... That Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer is slightly different and shorter than Matthew's version. How many of y'all noticed that? You were listening as I read. Okay, very good. Because it is. It is. But that's okay. There are no contradictions with Matthew's Lord's Prayer. It's just a condensed version of Matthew's Prayer. It's basically the same prayer. Um, My daughter, Brittany, lives in Jacksonville. And she sends me these uh, Christian memes. It's a website called Funniest Christian Memes. Have any of y'all seen those? Well, she sends them to me every now and then. She she sent me one last week, and it was a drawing of Jesus on a hillside teaching the disciples. It was probably the Sermon on the Mount or something, and his hand was up like this. And then there was the little bubble of text above it, and this is what it said. It says, Jesus said, okay, everyone, now listen carefully. I don't want to end up with four different versions of this. (laughs) And, of course, it was referring to the four Gospels, which are four different versions, four different perspectives on the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. It was pretty funny. She sends me crazy stuff. It's good stuff. But you will be happy to know, okay, that there are only two versions of the Lord's Prayer. It's Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. And they are not greatly different. It's the same basic outline but condensed, okay? For instance, Luke doesn't start with, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? It doesn't start that way. It's condensed. He doesn't say, Our Father. Luke says, Just Father, Hallowed be your name. So the first element of the Lord's Prayer, both in Matthew and Luke, is to acknowledge who God is, to acknowledge the holiness of God in respect, in showing respect to him. It's just like in Matthew. The next element is a desire to see God's purposes accomplished. He says, let your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, but it's actually in, in the mood where you would add a let. It's let your kingdom come. But he doesn't say let your will be done because they're almost the same thing, Really? So it's condensed. It's condensed. And Jesus tells us to ask for what we need to sustain our lives. Give us each day, each day, our daily bread. God, give us what we need. Lord, give us what we need. Not necessarily everything we want, right? But give us what we need to survive in life. And that could be housing, could be a job, could be anything. But He uses bread because that's the most common sustenance at the time. Give us today our daily bread right and then Jesus reminds us to pray for forgiveness and he includes a qualifier which basically means when I say forgiveness this is kinda what I mean okay and he says this in Luke he says and forgive us our sins for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us so forgive us as we forgive others in Matthew's version of this explanation the forgiveness, the, on his explanation on forgiveness is expanded both in the prayer and after the prayer. In chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, after the prayer, okay, Jesus says this. He says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive them, then your Father will not forgive you your transgressions. So forgiveness... It's serious business with Jesus, right? It's really important. It's the same thing that Luke said, but it's expanded for emphasis and clarity in Matthew. It's the Lord's Prayer Forgiveness for formula, formula. That's what I call it. The Lord's Prayer Forgiveness Formula, which is, Lord, forgive us like we forgive others. Forgive us like we forgive others. Forgive us as we forgive others. Then in verse 4. Verse 4, the Lord's prayer ends with this. Lead us not into temptation. That's the end of it. In Luke, that's the end of the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation. John Blake translation, Lord, don't lead us into a place where we will be tempted to go against your will for our lives. Don't let us go there. Protect us from temptation. Keep us from temptation. Do not lead us into temptation. The prayer in Luke doesn't include but deliver us from the evil one. Did you notice that? It doesn't include that. It's condensed. And it also doesn't include the benediction that's at the end of the prayer in Matthew. For yours is the kingdom and the what? And the power and the glory forever. Amen. It doesn't include that. This probably comes as a surprise to some of you because you've heard Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer your whole lives, really? And recited it's what my dad taught me. So you probably noticed that. But this is Luke's version, which as I said is more condensed and concise, which quite frankly is not Luke's style. It's the longest gospel. He's very wordy. He's very verbose. But for some reason here, okay, it's concise. But the truly notable thing about these two Lord's prayers is not that they're somewhat different. That's not really the remarkable thing about it. It's that they're so much alike. That's what's notable. What's amazing is that they are so similar to each other in outline and in content. It's amazing. It's amazing. And after this, after this Lord's Prayer, Jesus continues his lessons on prayer. He goes on after that, just like in Matthew, to teach about prayer. He teaches lessons on being persistent in prayer, being confident in prayer, and being hopeful in prayer. Here Jesus is teaching them and us to be persistent in our prayers. Don't give up on God if he doesn't answer your prayer immediately or when you think he should. How long did Abraham and Sarah pray for Isaac? They were in their 90s, right? They were in their 90s. But God answered their prayer, didn't he? And he answered it in a big way. Not how they thought maybe he would, but in his timing. Here, Jesus, he's teaching us to be persistent in prayer, in the the text that I just read for you, but also to be confident in our prayers. When we pray, don't ask things from God thinking, well, maybe he just might kind of, sort of answer our prayers. No. Pray with confidence. Ask with confidence. Ask knowing God hears and answers our prayers. He may not answer them exactly the way you think he should, but that's to be expected. In my my understanding, that's to be expected. Why? Well, because God is God. God knows things that we don't know, right? Right? So he's going to answer according to his ultimate knowledge and his will and his counsel. But he will answer. That's what Jesus is teaching. He will answer. Verse 9 says, ask. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Be confident in your praying, in your prayers. Jesus is teaching that. Last lesson. Jesus is teaching them, the disciples, and us to be hopeful in our prayers. Don't expect lame things from God. You know what I'm saying? Don't expect lame answers from God. Be hopeful when you pray. Be expectant of good things from God. And Jesus spells it out in the passage that I just read for you. Jesus wants us to know that God wants to give good things to us, his children... Just like parents want to give good things to their children. If they ask for bread, you're not going to give them a snake. Right? God's like that. He wants to give good things to us. So be persistent in prayer. Be confident in prayer. Be hopeful in prayer. Those are part of the lessons Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 11. Next in verses 14 through 20, Jesus addresses blasphemy. In the subtitle of my Bible, Blasphemy of the Pharisees. Did you ever wonder what the word blasphemy is? It's such a weird, sort of non distinct word, isn't it? Have you ever been reading through your Bible and said it's blasphemy? And, you're, and you, did you ever think, what's well, blasphemy? Right? It really is. But here, here I'm, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you a, a common definition for it, but I'm also gonna give you a real good way to understand it, especially dealing with what's happening here in chapter 11. The simple definition is this it's to talk badly about God to talk badly about God to speak of God in an offensive or sacrilegious way but a good way to think about it is this blasphemy is attributing a good work of God to the devil or to something evil okay it's giving the devil credit for something God did something good that God did or vice versa giving God credit for an evil done by Satan okay That's blasphemy, especially here. That's what happens in chapter 11, verses 14 through 20. Jesus is casting out demons and setting people free from the forces of evil. That's what he's doing. Jesus uses two names in chapter 11 when referring to evil. One of them is Beelzebul, which you also will see in the scripture spelled with a B at the end, Beelzebub. All right? and the word satan now most folks even unchurched irreligious folks are familiar with the term satan right or if you watch saturday night live in the church lady right satan you remember remember that so most people know the word satan but what's up with Beelzebub? what in the world does that mean okay what's that all about well we're lucky we're lucky because luke defines it for us in the text it says beelzebul the ruler Of the demons Beelzebul the ruler of the demons scholars believe that the origin of this name was possibly in the Canaanite God Baal or another Philistine God but either way either way Beelzebul is an evil being who is in league with Satan he's in league with Satan and Luke spells it out for us in chapter 11 the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul or Satan so there's your blasphemy. That's what blasphemy is, right? They're attributing evil to something that God is doing, okay, to God. Jesus is doing a good thing. He's doing a God thing. He's casting out demons and setting people free by the power of God. But the Pharisees are saying, no, it's not by the power of God. He's evil. He's using the power of evil to do these miracles. That is the blasphemy. And Jesus answers these accusations with truth that's what he does that's what Jesus always says he answers these accusations with truth and wisdom from above listen to verses 14 through 20 and he that is Jesus was casting out a demon and it was mute which means couldn't talk couldn't talk when the demon had gone out the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed but some of them said he cast out demons by beelzebul the ruler of the demons otherwise Um, Others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven, but he knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and the house and a house is divided against itself. Have you ever heard that before? It's a famous quote. Abraham Lincoln quoted that scripture in one of his speeches. I believe it was in a debate with Stephen Douglas in his campaign. I'm not sure. Abraham Lincoln uh, quoted that. Verse 18, if Satan also is divided against itself, he said, how will his kingdom stand? He says, common sense, it's not going to work. It's what Jesus is saying. For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, right? And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast out? In other words, the other Pharisees, what they're doing. Are they doing that or not? So they will be your judges. He's pointing to their hypocrisy. But if I cast out a demon by the finger of God. Ah, here we go. The finger of Jesus is the finger of God. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You remember at the beginning of Luke, he said the kingdom of God is at hand right at the door. He's saying right here, because of what I'm doing, casting out demons by the finger of God, it's evidence to you that the kingdom of God has come to you. It's a sign. It's a sign. In the next six verses, verses 21 through 26, Jesus takes his lesson on demonic possession to the next level. He gives us his instruction. He explains something to us about demonic possession, which is very, very interesting. And his message is this. If someone is possessed by evil, it's not enough just to expel the demonic presence. That's not when it's over. They must fill that empty space in their lives with God's presence, with God's good presence and the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, what will happen is the evil will return and prevail. And the last state of that person will be worse than the first. So listen for that in verses 21 through 26. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, and this is all imagery for our hearts and our spirits, our house, okay, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied, his defenses, he takes them all away, and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me, Jesus said, is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a person, when they're cast out, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house. In other words, the person he was cast out of from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and all put in order, the person that he was in. Then it goes in and takes along with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That's quite a thing to talk about. It's quite a thing to talk about. We need to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Okay? need to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Those spaces in us need to be filled. We all, John talked about this God-spaced wholeness. It needs to be filled with the Lord or it's going to be filled with other things. We need to fill it with God. And then he goes on, right after that, verse 27. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus said, okay, he said, On the contrary, Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying something very similar to what I said at the end of my message on Easter this year. Okay? Nothing, nothing is more important than knowing Jesus. Nothing is more important than knowing who he is and what he's done. Nothing is more important than hearing God's word and observing it. Nothing is more important than knowing the Lord, trusting him, loving him, following him, and living for him, living according to his word, his life, and his teachings. Amen? Amen. The next four verses are Jonah and Jesus, J and J. Sounds like a quick stop, right? J&J. Jonah and Jesus. Uh, Y'all know the story of Jonah, right? Everybody know the story of Jonah? Uh, He was a preacher in Israel, and God called upon Jonah. He said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. It's a wicked, wicked city with wicked people, tons of sin. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach to them so that they will repent, because I'm at the point where I'm going to destroy them. If they don't repent, I'm going to destroy them, so I want you to go and preach to them. And Jonah says, no, there's no way. I want you to destroy them they deserve it they've got it coming you need to destroy those people I've been to Nineveh it's awful they're wicked people I'm not going to go give them a second chance destroy them and God says no I want you to go and preach so Jonah runs away Jonah runs away from God have you ever tried to run away from God it's not easy because he's everywhere right? you've heard of the long arm of the law Ooh, the long arm of the Lord But Jonah thinks, well, if I just leave Israel and I go to a Gentile area, God's not with the Gentiles because nobody wants to be with them. So he goes over to the coast to Joppa, and he climbs on board a ship headed for Tarshish, and he thinks, I'm going to be gone. God's going to destroy Nineveh. And so as they're going along, God whips up this big storm, you remember? He whips up this storm, and everybody's afraid. They think they're going to perish. They're throwing all the stuff. They're throwing all the freight off the boat, and they're trying to save themselves. And Jonah, he knows what's going on. It's God. And he goes to the sea captain. He says, he says, you need to throw me overboard and I'll take care of your problem. He says, why is that? Why would we do that? He says, well, I didn't do what God said and you know, all this sort of thing. He says, no, no, I don't want your blood on my hands. But anyway, he ends up talking him into it and he throws jo- Jonah overboard. Right when he throws him overboard, what happens? Storm calms down. But before Jonah can drown, God sends what? A large fish or a whale, a great fish, the Bible calls it. And it swallows him up. And it's inside the fish for three days did you know that when you're sitting in a bunch of digestive juices you smell like fish and you can't see a thing it gives you time to think about your decisions right it gives you a little time maybe I shouldn't have been so rough on God right okay So he thinks about it and he decides, okay, I'll do it. So God sends the fish. It vomits him up on the beach. Can you imagine what he smelled like? I'm sure he must have gone back into the surf and bathed before he went to Nineveh because no one would listen to him if he smelled the way he did. So he goes to Nineveh and he preaches to them. After he comes out of the fish, he preaches to them. And guess what? They repent in sackcloth and ashes. God, we're so sorry. We've been wicked. We're evil. We're not going to do it anymore. And they repent. And God doesn't destroy the city. The people do not perish because of Jonah and the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Listen to this in verses 29 through 32. 29 through 32. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. Jesus speaking of his generation, right? It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, which I just explained to you, the story of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be to this generation. The signs are going to be alike. And then in verse 31, he says, The Queen of the South, if you want to look this up, it's in 1 Kings chapter 10 to get some background on this. I don't have time to explain the reference. That it says, The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is here. There's something way greater than the queen of the south and Solomon, it's me, right? And the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And who is that? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And of course, the point is obvious, that Jesus' crucifixion, dying on the cross, going into the tomb, how long was he in the tomb? He was raised on the third day. Just like Jonah was swallowed up by the fish, he was in the fish for three days, and then he came out. And Jesus' resurrection, his crucifixion and resurrection is the sign of Jonah. It's an Old Testament parallel that Jesus is painting for them. He's foretelling his death, being in the tomb, and his resurrection. And just like with Jonah, when he preached to the people of Nineveh, they repented and they were saved. They weren't destroyed. They didn't perish. For us, because of Jesus, the sign of the Son of Man, those of us who hear his good news, repent and believe in him, will not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. John 3.16. Jesus and, and the sign of Jonah are the same sign. It's a parallelism for that generation, but also for our generation. For our generation. Today we are called to repent of our wickedness because we live, you want to hear me, we live in a wicked generation. We really do. I'm not just saying that. We live in a very, very unusual time. And God is calling us to repent and to trust and to believe in Jesus. I'm not going to go through the whole chapter today because I don't have time. Like I told you, I already cut out about five or six pages of my message so I'm going to close with these last words. These verses and these words of Jesus. It's verses 33 through 36. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar nor in a basket. That would be silly, right? <laughs> but on a lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. Okay? When your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light. The eye is a metaphor For understanding light is a metaphor for proper understanding and that's what he's saying here the the eye is the lamp of your body and when your eye is clear your whole body is also full of light but when it is bad when your perception is wrong right your body is full of darkness because your understanding is flawed your spiritual understanding is flawed and then he says this then watch out that the light in you what you think is right what you think is light beware if that light is darkness because your perception's all messed up if therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it it will be wholly illuminated as when the lamp illumines you with its rays it will do what it's supposed to do when we have a good eye and a proper understanding and we shine our light Maybe you've heard me say this before. I know if you've been to Good News, like Carson, I'm looking back there, I'm seeing Carson. He's probably heard me say this several times. Um, It's a bad thing to be lost, isn't it? Pastor Bill has a great story about being lost. I do too, but I don't have time to tell it. But it's a bad thing to be lost, okay? It's a bad thing to be lost. But what's worse than being lost, much worse, is being lost and not knowing you're lost. You see what I'm saying? To be lost and not knowing you're lost is worse than being lost. And that is the condition of most of our present generation today. And I guess I'm being judgmental. But that is the condition of most of the generation that we live in today. all right? And you know what I'm talking about. All you have to do is look around. Watch the news. Turn on the news. And look at the cultural waves that are rolling over our country, over our nation, over our children, and other nations of the world. It's full, it's full of darkness. It's full of darkness and lostness. It's a wrong way of thinking. It's a wrong perception. It's darkness. And they, many people don't recognize that it's darkness. They don't even know they're lost, which is being really lost. Because why? Well, because their eye is bad, like what Jesus is saying here. Which means their perception is totally off. Their perception of light and darkness. Their perception of right and wrong. Their perception of God's will for our lives. It's off. Verse 35 says, Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. Be careful that what you think is right is not darkness. Matthew chapter 6 verse 23 says the same thing but it's stated a little bit differently. And I like the way it is in Matthew so much I'm going I'm to share it with you even though we're in Luke. Jesus said, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great, how deep is the darkness? Jesus said that we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. That is a huge thing to say. It's a great compliment. It means that we're very important. You are very important. Okay? Light is what gives perception. Can you see if you're in a room with total darkness? No, unless you got those cool little night vision goggles, right? No, we have to have light to see, to have proper perception. What does salt do? Salt brings healing. Salt heals, it preserves, it seasons. We're the light of the world. And the salt of the earth, you heard me say this, when one person becomes a Christian, the world becomes a better place. Because we're salt and we're light in the world. And we need to get the salt out of our shakers. We need to get the salt out of our shakers. We come here today, we come to church to get our lights going, right? To brighten our lights and to get salty. But we can't just stay in the church. We have to get out of the church and rub elbows with the world. Spread our saltiness around. Spread our seasoning around. And to shine the light and the love of Christ so that all can see. Do you agree with that? You are salt and light. You, your eye is good. Your perception is correct. God loved the world so much he gave his only son so whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the sign of Jonah is the sign of Jesus. And this generation is called to repent and to believe in him so that it will not be destroyed. But we will not perish. We will have everlasting life. Let me close with verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp, and that means after becoming a Christian, being enlightened, following Christ. No one after lighting a lamp puts away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that those who hear may see the light. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your favor. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you're here. And God, I pray for wisdom for us so that we can know what you want us to do. Lord, you've given us the gift of perception. Um, we have the knowledge of who you are. I pray that you would guide us because we have a big responsibility of being light in the world and being salt and seasoning in the world. You've called us to be your disciples and your apostles just as you called your disciples and apostles. You've called us to be that, to be salt and light to the world. We pray for your help and for your guidance. I pray also for the food. I give you thanks for the food that we're about to receive and just say grace over that. And thank you for the loving hands that have prepared it for us. In your name, Jesus. Amen.